0: Psalm 118, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. This is a day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice of cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever.
1: All right, the kids are dismissed for children's church. We are so thankful. The Rosenstedters are so, so thankful for those of you who are helping us with nursery. This is probably the first time both of us got to sing together since Simon has been born. And it's just wonderful, so wonderful that we got to do that as a family. So thank you for that hard work and that you do that. And for everybody who serves, which right now is everybody, because we beg you. We beg you to serve if you're a member of our church with our children. Um, and just to remember that these kids will grow up, and they are arrows in our quiver. and We get to send them out, and that the Lord would, would move in them as we pray. That we remember that on Sunday morning, there's probably... Not a room with so many non-Christians in it than what I just dismissed. But they get to hear the gospel every week. So thank you for that and thank you for parents, for parenting them well and faithfully. I pray that you would trust the Lord with your kids because uh, the results aren't up to you. You can be the greatest parent ever and it guarantees nothing. But your children are in the hands of a sovereign and wise God. He will care for them and love them and take them through every hardship and difficulty that they may have. With that, let's turn to Mark chapter 12. We are moving along. We have finished another chapter. We're in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. That is Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. I want to remind us last week what we looked at in the passage that just precedes this is Jesus' authority has been challenged by the Sanhedrin, a group of people who are religious leaders in Israel. And they're coming up to him and they're saying, who gives you this authority, Jesus And Jesus answers their question with a question. He says, the same person, basically, who gave John the authority, did that come from heaven or from man? And we talked about the obviousness of that answer. Jesus doesn't try to hide. He's not trying to pull some kind of like political move. He's being actually pretty straightforward. And in case they didn't get it that time, he then tells this parable. Jesus is not hiding who he is anymore. He's coming out pretty strong. And he tells this parable, a parable where he talks about this landowner who prepares a vineyard and then entrusts that vineyard to a group of tenant farmers. Farmers who would farm and take care of the vineyard while the owner is away. And this was a normal thing that would happen around this time. And these tenant farmers get a little too prideful and arrogant and they start to think that the vineyard is really theirs. And so when the owner of the vineyard sends servants They beat them and eventually even kill them. And so the owner says, I'm going to even send them my son. Surely they won't do that to my son. And they kill his son. For those of us who know, the Gospel, you know the story of Jesus, that He is the Son of God, come, and as Kendall shared with us before, we know it happens as we celebrate this week, on Friday, they kill the beloved Son. There's, he's not pulling any punches. This isn't a hard thing to figure out who is who in this scenario, and that's Jesus is telling the story, and he is talking about how they're going to kill the beloved Son, they're killing these servants. And then he quotes from Psalm 119, which is what we read earlier about him being the chief cornerstone that the builders have rejected and how that was God's plan. that's something the Lord has done, and it is marvelous in our sight. And that's how the, the parable ends, and then it tells us that the Sanhedrin gets the message, and they want to arrest him. And that's what we're going to look at, and I'll read that just for a second. But I want to kind of give us a story because I want to be really familiar. Because I tell that story, and if I'm honest with you guys, I read stories like this, I don't know, maybe because it's a parable, maybe because it's, I've heard it before, I just become so used to it, I miss the severity of what Jesus is saying. We've been doing family discipleship stuff at night with Judah, and um, you know, he is every bit a three-year-old boy, so it doesn't last very long, it's very, very challenging. Sometimes it's just like, you know what, mercy is new every morning, let's just go to bed. I'll just be honest, Like so that it doesn't go well most times. And Judah, I'm telling him this parable. It's in Matthew 21 as well. And I'm reading through it. And he's doing what three-year-old boys do, right? He's in his bed. And he's like, moving around a million times. He's playing with stuff. And we're just kind of letting him do his thing. And then I get to, and then they killed him. And Judah goes, and he stops. And Judah looks at me and says, why did they kill him, daddy? Why would they do that? And it was in that moment, I was kind of taken back. Because I like I don't know, I'm just reading the parable. It's late, I'm tired, I've been doing all this stuff, right? I'm just like trying to do this thing we do before bed. And, and I'm taken back because I don't see what this three-year-old boy sees. This is severe. This is a big deal. People are dying in this story. And we can look and say, well, it's just a parable. But we're going to get here. The parable has some correlation in real life. And in real life, Old Testament prophets were dying. And in real life, getting beaten. In real life, being imprisoned. And in real life, the beloved son dies. That's what happens, and I can just read that story. I can get to this Easter kind of time, and I know Jesus died for my sin, and I can just like let it hit me in a way that isn't new, that isn't fresh, that isn't different, that isn't challenging. And I don't know if it's because I hear it so much, but I'm telling you, I'm reading this story, and it just shows you the power of the word of God and the really good storytelling of, of Jesus, because I am trying to keep this little boy's attention, and bam, I hit the parable, and he snaps up, and he says, Why? Would they do that, daddy? Why would they do that? See, Judah is catching something that we've got to catch. So here's the big main idea that I want you to catch in this, is Jesus must be taken seriously. Jesus must be taken seriously. When Jesus talks to has his authority challenged, and they give him some weak non-answer of, we don't know where your authority comes from, Jesus tells a parable that says, well, you better figure it out. Because the owner of the vineyard is coming. And this is deadly serious. He's not pulling his punches anymore in the book of Mark. He's very, being very honest. He's being very straightforward. And Jesus is going to be required. He is demanding that they take him seriously. And there are three truths that I want to pull out from today's text that prove that. So, when I say, This is what the sermon's about, here's what I want to say. The good listener says, Prove it. Prove that Jesus wants to be taken seriously. And here's the three reasons, the three truths that I want to bring out from the text today of why Jesus must be taken seriously. Number one is because God is the owner. Number two, because Jesus is the beloved Son. And number three, because God will have justice. Those are the three things that we're going to see as we walk through the parable. This morning. So, with that, let me read the whole passage to us, keeping that all in mind. And I pray that we take it seriously and we let it hit us the way it's supposed to hit us that people are going to die in this parable. Verse 1, chapter 12, the book of Mark. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Then the season came, and he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent them to him another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and, they, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed, he still sent one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent to them, saying, They will respect my son, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they went seeking, and they were seeking to arrest him, because they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. We must see first that God is the owner in this parable Jesus is telling this parable, and, and a parable is simply a, a story, a fictitious story that Jesus is telling to teach a spiritual truth. And in this particular instance, he is going right after the group, this Sanhedrin. He's teaching this troop. They're the tenant farmers. They're the ones who've been entrusted with the vineyard, and they're not doing what, has, what they're supposed to be doing. And when God is coming to collect, they're killing the Old Testament prophets that we'll see, and then eventually they're going to kill the beloved son, as well. And they're not caring for the vineyard the way they are supposed to be doing that. And so tenant farming, is, it's just this everyday reality. Jesus chooses this because he knows it's going to connect to them. And he's teaching that truth about them, that he is the owner. And we even kind of see that. He really plays that out in the details that he gives in, these first, in this first verse. He said, he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard He put a fence around it, dug a pit for a wine press, and he even built a tower and then leased it to the tenants and went to another country. There's no mistake, like, who owns the vineyard, right? The the man who goes away to the other country, he's the owner. He's the one who puts in all the work. He's the one who makes this thing ready to go. And then he's the one who leases it out to these tenant farmers, which is a good and gracious thing to them. What's really interesting is this passage, I just want to read from three verses from Isaiah 5, 1 through 3, because it is strikingly similar, and so Jesus, I think, is purposely picking up on this language, and it says, and and Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, it says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. So the beloved is, is God. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watch tire in the... Tower in the midst of it, and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. So he's talking about this vineyard that God has, and he's and he's and he's storing it up. And then in verse seven, he tells him, Israel is my vineyard. So it's no secret what Jesus is trying to say in the parable. What is the vineyard? Vin, the vineyard is his people. The vineyard are are those who he has brought about to be his, which is Israel. And these tenant farmers, he's entrusted it to these tenant farmers. God has entrusted his people to these religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. And they are not caring for the vineyard in the way that he would direct them to do that. They're betraying it. And they're getting to the place where they think it's for them. Again, they're, they're, they're getting economic gain. They're, they're, they're getting status and power. It gets them an end with the Roman government because then they get to kind of be the liaison between the Jewish people and the Roman government. And they like that. They like the power. They like the status. And Jesus is coming and he's saying, you're not being faithful to the one who's leased you, these people. You're not teaching the things them that are true. And now they're in direct opposition to God himself. God wrapped in flesh, Jesus they're questioning his authority and saying, who are you supposed to be? Who do you think you are? And they're just entrusted stewards. They're not the owners. When we helped plant a church in Bexley, and a lot of us know here in Bexley, Bexley is Bexley, right? It's pretty ritzy. And there are some things in Bexley that are pretty crazy. And there were some college students in our church at the time, and they had landed what I thought was like the coolest, sweetest gig as a college student you could land. See, when you have a lot of money and a really beautiful house, you don't only spend a ton of time in it because you have a ton of money. You get to go travel around and do this stuff, something that I'm not used to at all as being from a blue-collar family. But that's what these folks did. And these college students got this awesome job of becoming house sitters. Which meant they got to go live in these like sweet swanky like houses in the middle of Bexley and, and they got to hang out. But guess what? When the owner of the home came back, they got out. Right? To put this into maybe some like modern term for us who aren't maybe doing a ton of tenant farming here in urban, you know, Columbus, it would be like a college student coming back and being like, This is mine now. I'm not leaving. Like, what do you mean you're not leaving? Like, you don't own this place. You're, you're 20 years old. Get out of my house. Right? Like, you wouldn't do that. They would call the cops and you'd get hauled out and they'd be like, well, not using that any, app anymore to find my house it, right? Like, the, it's ridiculous. It's crazy that these tenant farmers think they have any right to the land. It doesn't make any sense. So they come and we see that, that God is the owner of the vineyard, God is the owner of all the things. He's the owner of everything in my life, in your life. See, what we need to recognize from this passage as we work through, we see that God is the owner. We need to see that we're just stewards and we're not owners. See, you don't own this church, and neither do I. I am God's steward and nothing more. You don't own your spouse. You are God's steward. You don't own your kids. You're just God's steward. Your job, your material possessions, everything that you want to claim ownership to and right to, this is mine. I get to do with it what I want. God says, it's all mine. You're just a steward. It belongs to him and he is entrusting us with these gifts, with these blessings. And as Jimmy said a few weeks ago while I was out of town, we are blessed to be a blessing. The Sanhedrin was blessed to be a blessing. They're supposed to cultivate the vineyard. They're supposed to make it Thrive and grow so that when the owner comes, they would say, Oh Lord, look what we've done. Look what we've harvested for you. It's your vineyard. Look at your people, how they're faithful, even in the midst of Roman oppression. Look at your people. And when God comes to the temple, he starts flipping tables because they're not faithful. They're a negative example of what we're supposed to be. And we're going to see that all the way out throughout the the parable. (laughs) See, we're just stewards, we're not owners. The same is true for your life. As we want to begin to think through what has God given for me to steward? Am I being faithful for that which He has given? He's entrusted you to go and share the gospel, to make disciples to bring them into the church and baptize them, to teach them to obey. These are things that we as Christians have been entrusted to do, to expand the kingdom. When we look at the negative example, the Sanhedrin, and say, God, I want to be a better steward. You've entrusted these things to me so that I might be a blessing to others. Won't you help me? But here's the good news about that. Because reality, if any of us are serious, and me as well, we'd say there's lots of things in our lives that we're not great stewards of. Nobody can come here and say, like, Oh, a perfect steward of all God's given me. But God just doesn't smite us immediately for refusing to give of his fruit. What we see is that he sends messengers. And of his love for his people, he sends them these messengers, these servants as they take part in the parable, so that we might learn and be changed. And he even sends his beloved son. And we want to pick that up in verses 3 through 8. Second truth there is that Jesus is the beloved son. Reading verse 3 it says, And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. I just want to stop there for a second because I want us to see the escalating nature. This is a good storytelling. Jesus is doing a, he's a great storyteller, right? At first they just beat him. Then the next one comes and they strike him on the head. It's to kind of show us that it's injury. And, and, and you would even know, right? Like someone, when you're a kid and you're horsing around, right? Someone slugs you in the arm and it's funny. Someone punches you in the face and it's on right like you you know that it's different when you get struck in the head it's an escalating kind of thing, and it escalates to the point where where at first they just send him away empty handed they strike him on a on the head, and they even shame him, maybe they stripped him naked, pulled out his beard, spit on him they're taking it another step further, making them feel shame. And it's all escalating and escalating to what the beloved son is going to experience. He's going to experience beating and his head is going to be struck with a crown of thorns and he's going to get spit on and stripped naked and put out into open shame. That's what happens and it's escalating and escalating until finally it gets to the point where they kill these servants. And he continues to send servants and some they kill and some they do not. Verse six Picking up there, he says, and he sent still another, a beloved son. Finally, sent to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, "This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours." That is ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous. It's supposed to be ridiculous. Like who thinks like you know how you get like a really wealthy guy's wealth kill his heir. He's definitely gonna write you into the will after you do that. What are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. This is a very, very bad plan. So much so that when when I got to the part where Jesus says, what will they do to their, Judas This goes, he'll kill them back. Like he knows, like this is a terrible plan. This isn't gonna work. This is, what are you doing? But see, that's foolishness. That's the foolishness in our lives when we think that we could, aren't, the stewards, and that we're the owners. When we think that we can functionally kill God by just ignoring his authority and do what we want, we do really silly things. Things that are just totally outlandish. It doesn't make any sense. Like, you don't read this passage and think, that's probably going to work. They have a good idea. Kill the guy's son, then he'll give you all the stuff. Like, no, he's, he's not going to do that. He's going come back with vengeance. It's just the reality of what is happening but they're so foolish that in verse 8 we see, and they took him, the beloved son, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. They don't even give him a proper burial. They disregard his body. It's shame. In this culture, and in this time, it is, that is, it's, it's deplorable to not care for somebody's body. The body of the owner's the, his son? This is a bad idea. They're getting ready to set themselves up for a world of hurt. But like I told you before, this parable it correlates to real life. It's not just a story of servants and a beloved son who get killed, but it correlates to real life. And in Matthew 23, verses 29-39, listen to what Jesus says to these religious leaders who, in this passage, he's called scribes and Pharisees, which would be very similar to the Sanhedrin that we're talking about. Verse 29, it says this, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the, the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets.'" So they're saying with their mouth, man, if we were then back then, we wouldn't have killed God's prophets. We would have known better. We would have done the right thing. And Jesus is saying, you're a hypocrite. Particularly because when he points to John's baptism and he's doing that on purpose, I believe in Mark 11, because the reality is they turn John over. And Herod kills John. The Scribes and the Pharisees never believe in him. They're hypocrites says, so thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. Basically, follow in their footsteps. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify. Some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakai, which in their construction of the Old Testament, so same books, they just built it a little differently. Abel was the first prophet killed, the brother of Cain. And Zechariah, because they, was ordered, they put Second Chronicles at the end In the end of 2 Chronicles, he's the last prophet killed in the actual altar itself. They have the audacity to go into God's temple, holy place, and kill God's priest. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, all of their blood, he was crying out against you. We can think if you even remember in Genesis 4 that, that God says, Abel's blood cries out to me. Saying is crying out to them is calling them guilty, you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar verse thirty six truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children, your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing, see your house is left you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Which is another quote from Psalm 118, which he's getting ready to quote here in this parable, just a different part of it. But remember when we were talking about good, uh, the triumphal entry, he was quoting Psalm 118. If I'm going to remind you of that again, they were saying, Hosanna, which is save us, save us. If you remember, we just read that. He said, Save us, save us in the Psalm. And he says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so he's pointing them back to that in both passages, that they they're are rejecting him. See, the reality is, as we deal with this passage, and we look at the audacity, I mean, it's just a terrible idea that even the three-year-old boy says, like, he's going to kill them back, right? Like, he knows this is a bad plan, guys. We still have to deal with the fact As we look at this, Jesus is saying that they are going to kill the son. And it doesn't make any sense. It's a really, really bad plan. And so I look at my three-year-old and we're wrestling through this, this parable together and he looks at me and he says, Daddy, why would they kill him? Daddy, why would they kill him? But the hard part about that reality and what comes next in the passage is I have to answer that question. Why would they kill him? I had to look in my son's eyes and I had to tell him, they killed him for me. They killed him for you, Judah. That's why they killed him. They killed him because this was God's plan. They killed him because God allowed it to happen because he did it. Because while we were still yet sinners, Christ showed his love for us and then he died for us. That's why they killed him killed them for you, and they killed them for me. And the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 2:10, "For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, talking about Jesus being God, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Why did they kill him? because it was God's plan that he would die and bring many sons to glory. They killed him for me. They killed him for you. That's what we must know. See, Jesus, in this parable, is the beloved son. He is pointing the way. You're going to kill the beloved son. and We need to know that the beloved son died for you. That the beloved son died for me. This parable is meant to stir us and rock us and make us think, why did they do this? This is scandalous. It doesn't make any sense. It's a really, really bad plan that these scribes and Pharisees have. But it isn't a bad plan if you're going to bring many sons and daughters to glory. It's a bad plan for them, but it was a wonderful plan for me and for you and for all who put their faith and trust in Jesus. And it was God's plan. They died so that he might take away the vineyard from them and give it to others. And that's what we read about in verses 9 through 12. See, God will have his justice, but listen to what happens. It says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. So, have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, for they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The reason he dies, the reason this happens, is so that when the owner returns, when the Lord sees what's happening, he's going to come, he's going to destroy these tenants, and he's going to give the vineyard to others. And those others are Gentiles like me and you who can only come into the vineyard and be a part of it because we're being grafted in through faith and repentance. Jesus is saying what he said in the last chapter, my father's house will be a house of prayer for what? For many nations, not just one. And he's making it possible and he's bringing it away so that people like us might know and fear God and be saved from the wrath of God and take part in his blessing of this vineyard. He is cutting off, as the book of Romans explains in Romans 11, he's cutting off the olive branch, which is what he calls Israel. He cuts it off, and then it says he is grafting in, which is something you can do. It's bringing in a foreign tree, which is us, so that we might grow up and become part of its root. It's an amazing thing. And he continues on and he tells them, "Have you not read this scripture?" And he quotes from Psalm one eighteen, verses twenty through twenty two to twenty three, right here in the book of Mark, verse ten and eleven. And it says, "The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is that stone." He's the stone that the builders are rejecting and he's becoming the cornerstone. And the cornerstone is what you would lay down first and it would set the lines for the the two walls that it was supporting. And if that stone was right and and center and the way it's supposed to be, then your walls would be strong. And if it was off, your building's not gonna be a very good building. And so Paul then picks up on that in Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22. He says, so then... You who are no longer strangers and aliens, talking about two Gentiles, but you who are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so that's what he's teaching He's teaching that we get to be a part that because the builders, the Jews, reject the stone, reject Christ, we get to be a part of it. It opens up the door for us. God is saying, I'm gonna fill up my wedding feast. If If the people invited don't wanna come, I'm going to go and bring everybody in. I'll go out into the highways. I'll go out and call them in. And that's us. That's me and you. We get to take part in this because the stone was rejected. But he is the cornerstone. He is who, who holds it all together. And it's Jesus. And those who were once far off are being brought near. Those who were once strangers and aliens, foreigners, are now fellow citizens or saints, members of the household of God, because what has Jesus has done? And it's so amazing. But it comes with a very severe warning because God is going to give his justice. In the parallel passage, in Matthew twenty one, it basically says all the same things, but it adds these two verses. In Matthew twenty one, verses forty three and forty four. It says this Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Then verse forty-four, and the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. God is saying one or two things are going to happen when the owner returns. He is either going to punish everybody who does not follow him, who does not have faith and trust in the cornerstone, who is not building their lives on Jesus. He's either going to punish them and crush them, or he, if you have built your life on Jesus, if you have built your life on the cornerstone, you will be a part of this temple that he's building where God is going to dwell with us forever. And that's an amazing thing. It's a difficult thing. It still makes us ask why. It makes me ask why. Why are these people... Rejecting God. Why do they reject God and I don't? Why are they getting crushed by the cornerstone and I'm not? See, if it wasn't for their falling away, I wouldn't have access. But this was the Lord's doing, is what the passage tells us. It was always His plan. It's not a surprise. It's not plan B. It's not like, oh man, this Israel thing just didn't work out. Darn. That's not what God is doing. He never sits on his throne in the kingdom and says, oh no, my plan didn't work. He's the sovereign God of the universe. And this is an amazing thing. Free will, sovereignty come colliding together. And we look at that and we think, those things can't work together. And God says, yes, they do. Watch me. They freely choose to disobey. They freely choose to reject the Son. But it's God's doing. It's God's plan. Peter tells us that in Acts 2. This is the preordained plan of God. Nothing's going to stop it from happening. Nothing will stop Jesus from going to the cross. Nothing's going to stop God from bringing his children home. This is Thing that we don't understand. And I wish I could explain it better, but I don't, other than I just say we're carried away by our own desire freely. And yet God in his beautiful sovereign plan is weaving this world together in such a way that he is bringing many sons to glory. And he's doing it in a way that you and I would never do it. I would never say, here's my beloved son. Never. But he does. That's his plan, and that's what our passage tells us in verse 10 there, or excuse me, verse 11, that this was the Lord's doing, and then what does it say? And it was marvelous in our eyes. Do you marvel? Are you amazed? Do you see this plan that God is doing, sending his son for you? We have to answer and say, why did they kill him? For me, that's why they killed him. For you, that's why he killed him. There's an old hymn, we transition to the chorus in it, there at the end of our worship, of our music time. It says this, and the lyric should be on the screen behind us. It says, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And wonder how he could love me, a sinner, condemned unclean. Do you wonder at that? Do you see the truth of this as we make our way into Good Friday? Come, O oh sinner, come and mourn. Do we see that we don 't deserve this it 's not for us. Are we taken back in anew, or do we read parables like this and you 're like me? And it takes a three-year-old boy to wake you up out of your stupor to say, why do they do this? This is scandalous. The innocent one dies and the guilty are set free? That doesn't make any sense. Why does it happen? What does that do? Well, it's the Lord's doing. And we need to stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. We need to stand in awe and wonder And then we sing that chorus as it says, how marvelous, how wonderful, and my song will ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. What we must do as we hear this passage and struggle with these things is we must embrace Jesus as the cornerstone we must see that this is who he is, that he is the one that literally God is calling you to build your life around. Not an easy believe not a raise your hand and everybody's eyes are closed, but a true reality of are you building your life around the cornerstone of Jesus, that he literally sets the line for me.
0: And all my life is built on him.